Our sermon text is John 21. I already gave you a heads up about that, so you should have a bookmark in it and ready to go. John 21, verses 1 through 14. The words will be on the screen here in a moment. If you prefer that, there is a Bible provided for you underneath the seat in front of you, the little black hardback books of the Bibles. John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. You know, most of the time, ordinary events are not imbued with profound spiritual significance. That's why they call them ordinary, I suppose. You know, we, we go to work and then we come home. And maybe our spouse asks, how was your day? It was fine. Your spouse might be fishing for a little bit more than that. But that's... <laughs> But that's the true report, isn't it? It was fine. That's a lot of days just very ordinary. We go to the grocery store. We go to the gym to work out, theoretically, or, uh, <laughs> you know, exercising in some other regard. But we, just, we just come and go and do ordinary things. And, of course, God is present all the time, and he's always working even in the midst of of the ordinary, but most of our everyday activities are just ordinary. In this morning's passage in John chapter 21, an ordinary overnight fishing trip followed by what otherwise would be an ordinary breakfast on the shore are transformed by Jesus into an extraordinary series of events that provide timeless lessons about our relationship with him and our service to him. So I've titled this message, Sure Things in Our Walk with Christ. Let's look together at John 21, verses 1 through 14. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word as we listen for his voice in it. Beginning at verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking... Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. 
And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, Father, we do thank you now, as always, for your word, for its truth and life. And Lord, you know of our need of both truth and life in them. And you know every heart here and every need represented by those hearts. So we open them to you to receive what you would speak into our lives and ask, indeed, that you would speak, O oh Lord, your word by your spirit, through your servant, to your people, for your glory, and for our good. Lord, move me out of the way and use my voice as your instrument today to communicate to us in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the last two weeks, uh, you've been taken through the resurrection in three appearances of Jesus to his followers, one to Mary Magdalene, two to the disciples as a group. And I should uh, say thanks publicly to Steve Curtis and Brian Slater for preaching those messages and for their availability um, so often, almost always, uh, in my absence to, to fill the pulpit and to fill it well. So I'm grateful to both of them. But you, you've walked through, if you've been here, those, uh, those events, the resurrection and those appearances. And so, for the reader who's paying close attention, it sounds like the book comes to an end at the end of chapter 20. And maybe uh, a reminder would serve uh, to help in that uh, regard, remembering that. But in verses 30 and 31 of chapter 20, he says something along the lines of, you know, the whole world couldn't, all the books in the world couldn't contain all the things that Jesus did. Can't write about all of them, but I've, I've written these so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. The end, right? No. And if you were watching a movie that came to sort of that point, you, you would expect there the credits start to roll. But then another scene starts playing. That's how John finishes out. And you've maybe seen movies like that, right? Where the, the movie comes to an end, the credits even start to roll, and then maybe up in the top right-hand corner, another scene starts to play. In this case, it's not the blooper reel or any kind of outtakes or deleted scenes. It's just an epilogue of sorts, to the story. Something worth noting as a, a bit of a postscript to the story. That's really what chapter 21 is like. And so why is it here then? Because that's always, when we're reading the scripture, we always want to know, at the, very, at the most basic level, Lord, why are you telling me this? Why did you write this? John just said, he didn't write everything that could be written. I've I've chosen selectively the things that I did right. Why did he tell us this? And I'd say primarily for two reasons. Um, and I'm going to just survey these real quick and then 
move on to the message, and that's why I, uh, I wanted to be sure to highlight that. But number one, he underscores the fact that the resurrection was bodily. It was a bodily resurrection and unmistakably real. That's one of the points that he's driving home here is that when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus, we're not talking about seeing his ghost, seeing an apparition of Jesus, seeing something in the middle of the night and, and going, oh, what was that? I think that was Jesus. That looked like Jesus. I'm not sure if that was real. I mean, part, of what, part of what the gospel writers want to do is to underscore for us there was no mistake in this, and it wasn't just spiritual in some respect. It was a man, a real man, who had real flesh and blood, who hung on a real cross, died a real death, laid in a real tomb, and experienced a real resurrection, and showed up in real flesh and blood once again. That's part of what's being underscored here. And it says in verse 14, it's the third time he has appeared. And over the course of 40 days, he'll appear to his disciples multiple other times, an unnumbered number of times. But it says in the book of Acts, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and taught them concerning the kingdom of God. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, he appeared to a total of like 500 people. Lots of other appearances are going on. But it was real and bodily. They saw Jesus. He cooked fish. He talked with them, and ate with them like real people talk and eat together. That's one of the reasons this is here. And then number two, this postscript, this sort of epilogue is included here to show how lovingly Jesus restored Peter after his three denials of Jesus. And we get to the real sweet moment uh, uh, in that respect next week. But there's something that uh, gives special attention to Peter here in chapter 21, even the verses we just read. In fact, I thought about titling this message, For Pete's Sake. Uh, because really, this was uh, provided special comfort and special honor even to Peter. And it was of most value to him. He's sort of the featured character. But in the course of those uh, purposes that are being written about, in the course of these events we see some profound lessons about our service of Christ and our relationship with Christ. And that's what I want to look at this morning quickly. But we see, number one, our own powerlessness. Number two, his infinite knowledge and power. And then number three, his personal provision. And so let's look first at what it tells us about as his disciples how powerless we are, that it is a sure thing. I said there are three sure things about our relationship with Christ and our service to him. And one is that in our own strength and on our own agenda, we are utterly powerless, incapable of doing anything of spiritual good or significance. The disciples here had retreated, if you will, to the Sea of Tiberias, which is also called the Sea of Galilee. We probably know it better by that name. But it's a considerable distance from Jerusalem, uh, probably at least 70 miles plus. So if you're walking that distance, that's several days' walk. In Mark 16, when um, 
The angel reported at the tomb to the women who went there to the empty tomb. They told the women to go tell Jesus' disciples that Jesus would meet them in Galilee, essentially. He was going ahead of them to Galilee. And the point just being, my point in sharing that, is that part of the plan, part of the expectation was for them to go from Jerusalem back to Galilee, not just to go back home, but to expect to see Jesus there. And so it's very likely all of them had gone to Galilee, but seven of them decided to go fishing on this particular night. It was prompted, as you saw in verse 3, by Peter's statement, I'm going fishing. And you've maybe heard messages, lessons on this passage before. It's been popularly interpreted as that Peter was returning to his occupation as a fisherman. Then when he said, I'm going fishing, I'm going back to being a fisherman. That's possible. Uh, Not at all clear from the text. It doesn't really say that or insist upon that. But it does seem at the very least they don't really know what to do at this point. Right? I mean, they've, been, they've given themselves for three years to this man, to his preaching of the kingdom with some expectations of how that would manifest. The wheels came off the wagon. He's dead and risen again, but what's next? They don't really know. He has said, I'm sending you. So they have that expectation that they are to go, but don't really know how that's going to unfold, especially knowing, you know, there were things that Jesus said along the way that they just didn't get, right? And so, like, they they don't really know what to do next, necessarily. And so they go fishing. And at the end of verse 3, there's this key statement that they went out got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, by itself, that's not unique. In fact, it's not even unique in the Gospels. This happened, there was a particular account of this in Luke chapter 5 that we'll come back to and look at a little more closely uh, in just a moment. But it wouldn't be unique to fishermen to go and catch nothing. If I ask for a show of hands, some of you uh, confident enough to raise your hand would say, yes, I've gone out fishing and I've caught nothing. I don't mind telling you that that's mostly how I do fishing. (laughs) Even if I'm in the boat with somebody catching fish. So it's not by itself, that's not particularly unique. It is uh, noteworthy, I suppose, that having been called to be fishers of men and having been told by Jesus, I'm sending you out, that here when they go back to fishing, when they revert back to what's familiar, they're unsuccessful at it. It may have been one thing Peter thought he could do successfully because he's failed Jesus pretty miserably, right, in his denials of him. But he goes out and and they catch nothing. And then, in verse 5, Jesus sort of points that out. It says there that Jesus called from the shore. He's about 100 yards off. They're about 100 yards offshore. Uh, Probably just the visibility prevents them from knowing immediately who that is. 
early morning, 100 yards away, and no expectation Jesus is going to be there on the shore. But anyway, he calls out, children, do you have any fish? There's actually a negative uh, particle there in the, in the Greek texts that would, would render it something like, children, do you not have any fish? And it says this in uh, the New American Standard, children, you do not have any fish, do you? Now, of course, we know without question Jesus had good intentions. But that poked on a sore spot, I'm pretty sure. Because if you come in with no fish, you really don't want anybody else to notice. You know, you don't want the wife or children waiting for you to arrive and say, where's the fish? You know, it's like some of you golfers, you know, you, you slice the ball, you know, way just out of bounds into through the f- living room window of the house that's on the fairway there or whatever, and your golfing buddy says, Why, you really shanked that one, didn't you? (laughs) That is just, that is so offensive and infuriating because you're already frustrated enough. Jesus underscores the point here. Children, you don't have any fish, do you? And it adds a little bit of a sting to their disappointment. But as I said, ordinarily, going out fishing and catching nothing would have no spiritual significance. But here, there's a living parable, a living lesson, because his plan was for them to be fishers of men. And in that endeavor, without him, they could do nothing. Do you remember he said that in John 15? I'm the vine, you're the branches. Remain in me. Without me, you can do nothing. And here it is, a vivid illustration, even something as ordinarily, ordinary and mundane as fishing, which they know how to do well. Without him, they could do nothing. But then we see, second, just a lesson about his infinite knowledge and power. And I won't belabor this point for long, but Jesus told them to cast their net on the right side of the boat. Which, as you've probably envisioned here, is not terribly far from the left side of the boat. <laughs> right? It doesn't seem like anything that should be especially remarkable about that or even advice that you would care to follow. Cast it on the right side of the boat. And they did, and it says in verse 6, they were not able to haul it in. Because of the quantity of fish. And so it's not simply that Jesus knew where the fish were, although he did and he does. It tells us something again about his infinite knowledge. He knew, cast your nets on the right side of the boat. But it also is an issue of his infinite power. Because without whistling... He called the fish right there to that one little spot. If he wanted to, he could have made them do a synchronized swimming routine right there. Just poking up out of the water. Oh, 153 fish. Right? He's totally Lord over all of creation. In fact, Hebrews 1 says of Jesus that he upholds the universe 
by the word of his power. Absolutely staggering claim. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. 153 fish will dance at his command. And so he brought the fish to that spot and and they caught him, of course. And this was the aha moment for them. And maybe you you caught that uh, in the text. It's the Lord. They recognize this because this happened in Luke chapter 5, as I said, where where he initially calls them. They've been out fishing all night. They've not caught anything. In that case, they were already in cleaning their nets. And you don't want to go back out fishing. After you've cleaned your nets, after catching nothing. But they did, and of course, they took in a big haul that day. And Peter says, oh, get away from me. I'm a sinful man, in so many words. And it's where Jesus said, from now on, I'll make you fishers of men. So this occasion at John, in John chapter 21, harkens back to that where he's sort of doing it again or doing something very similar again. And they know it's the Lord. Because they have submitted themselves to his infinite knowledge and power. And again, the, part of the lesson for us is just that in Christian life and ministry, we need to listen to his voice. And we need to obey it, follow his direction. There's a lot that has been said for us in the scripture about Christian life and ministry. And we, we ought to do it his way. But there are plenty of other ways and in, in specific ways that aren't spoken of specifically in the scripture where we uh, need to seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit. But we need to do what he says to do. That's where there, there is power. And obey in Him. And no matter how rational and logical it seems to cast on the left side of the boat, no matter if that's the trend and everybody else is doing it, if He says, cast on the right side of the boat, that's what we must do because He knows all And he has the power to do all and work all together according to the counsel of his will. And that's the second lesson here. A sure thing in our walk and service of Jesus is his infinite knowledge and power. And then third, we can be sure of his personal provision. Verse 9 says, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it. And bread. I really love this picture here because it is so personal and relational. Just to invite them in for breakfast. But not only that, he's already provided fish before they caught any fish. You see, uh, when they had caught nothing, he had something. 
See, he's already made provision to cover our failure. I am thankful for that. I've tested it out. Happen to know it's still true. He's already made, he's already provided fish to compensate for their nothing. And listen, he's the fire had already been burning for a while. It's a charcoal fire. Right? He made preparation well before they came in with their nothing. When they followed his advice and caught a whole lot of something, he had already made preparation to compensate for their nothing and to provide for them at least on a basic level. But then, of course... He did tell them where the fish were. They cast their nets and they caught 153 large fish, it says. And I don't know if you noticed that word. It's, a, it's an important word here. Because 153, you know, minnows or finger mullets, you know, like that's not so extraordinary. But you think about, we don't, I mean, he, use, he uses the word mega, the Greek word megas. Mega fish. Again, the large fish don't know exactly how big, but think about a net full of something like red drum, if you know red drum, or red snapper, or black drum, or something that's big. Something that if you catch one of, you take a picture <laughs> and post it and share it with friends. 153 large fish in a net. And he tells them to bring that to join him at the fire for breakfast. There's something beautiful about that to me. Because he's the one who provided the fish for them. He already had, see, he, he provided fish on the fire for them. And then he provided 153 other fish for them. But he says, you Bring your fish. Have breakfast with me. Isn't there something beautiful about that? I mean, not only that he, that he provides personally, but, it, but does so in the context of relationship. This is the resurrected Jesus, okay? The resurrected Jesus sitting down, having conversation and breakfast with his disciples relationship, personal. The same risen Jesus that we know and serve, the same risen Jesus that we come to the table in just a few moments to commune with. He's alive, just as alive in just a real body, as he was in this story, sitting by the fire. And we can be sure without him, we can do nothing, that we're powerless. But we can be sure in walking with him uh, of his infinite knowledge and power. In fact, we can be sure of his infinite knowledge and power even when we aren't submitted to it. Like, in other words, that he knows all, and he can do all, even when we're ignoring what he knows and doing our own thing. 
He's still absolutely Lord. And he still provides completely and personally, abundantly at times. And even in the midst of our own failures, he is good and he's a relational savior. And we can be sure of that and we ought to be thankful for that in this season of Thanksgiving. Well, let's pray together. Lord, you are good. And even in a brief treatment of this passage, Lord, we just acknowledge the profound truth that without you we can do nothing. And we confess we try all the time to do something without you. Even church stuff, even ministry, we can try to do it in our own strength, in our own wisdom, according to our own agenda. And we can even deceive ourselves into thinking we have done some spiritual good. But Lord, without you, we are powerless. We just thank you, Lord, that you are infinitely powerful and all-knowing and all-good toward us. Lord, I pray that you would capture every heart here to want to enter into relationship with you for those who have not. To want to go deeper in relationship with you for those who need to go deeper and for those just to remain in relationship with you who are already abiding with you. But Lord, I pray that you would make known to us how sweet your fellowship is, how constant your relationship and your personal provision for us. That even as we come to the table today, that we might really encounter you in it. We ask it in the name of Christ. Amen.